to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Wow, what a week this has been. There was a story in Politico that blamed Israel for spying on the White House. And it looked like this was going to be a blockbuster story, but it fizzled out. And speaking of Israel, what about those elections? I'll explain to you why it really is as complicated as it looks. This is the Middle East, you know. And then there was Beto O'Rourke saying, hell yes, we're going to take your guns away. And in our you-can't-make-this-stuff-up department, there was a university professor who said that good grammar was racist. Welcome to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The first story woke me up in the morning. I said, no way. Israel is spying on the United States with little tiny devices that can pick up not only the cell phone information, but also the conversation? Not likely. The story didn't pass the smell test. You know, it only appeared in Politico. And Politico is a publication that is decidedly left of center. That's not the point, though. The point is, though, they blamed Israel, Israeli spies, on planting these devices to spy on the president, essentially, we think. Hard to tell, because the devices were outside the White House. Now, why doesn't it pass the smell test? Because since the Jonathan Pollard affair in 1987, Israel has been extremely careful about spying on the United States. Jonathan Pollard was a civilian U.S. Navy intelligence analyst who was convicted of passing intelligence over to Israel, and he was the first and only convicted American spy to be given a life sentence for passing intelligence to an ally. Since then, Israel has followed a directive that forbids any Israeli from carrying out spying operations against the United States, period. No espionage operations without any exception. And Israeli officials said that this report was a complete fabrication. So that's the reason that it doesn't pass the smell test. Israel's relationship with the United States is better than it has ever been in the history of the country. Israel is 71 years old. So this is by far the best relationship that they have had with the United States. And it's a serious relationship. In fact, it's so serious that the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the President of the United States, Donald Trump, are considering the possibility of a mutual defense agreement, which is a, a very serious commitment on the part of both countries to have each other's back. In addition to which, Israel and the United States already share a great deal of intelligence. Israel has absolutely everything to lose and nothing to gain by spying on the White House. 
It would be the worst possible move. And I don't believe anybody serving in the government of Israel is that stupid. Is Israel capable of the technology? Well, yeah, I'm sure they are. Israel is one of the world leaders in innovative technology development. So it's possible, even likely, that they have developed such devices. Israel has a robust R&D industry. I know because when I lived there, I was actually involved in this industry in getting it up and running and then supporting the, the various uh, entrepreneurs who participated in Israel's unique and highly successful technological incubator program. It's where many of these leading edge, groundbreaking technological developments and new products are born. Once it develops its technology, Israel sells it all around the world. The idea that another country could plant such devices around the White House is not all that far-fetched. So I think that the chances that Israel planted those devices is very, very limited. Not impossible, but it makes no sense at all. So that was a story that was carried by one, out, one news outlet, and others picked it up but always attributed it to Politico which was smart, because it turns out it was a non-story. What the president likes to call fake news. Okay, so now, now that we're talking about Israel, anyway, let's go on to two other stories that are really relevant to the subject of Israel. Recently, in the last few months, we've been talking about Iran and Israel Hamas, Hezbollah, Syria, and they're all connected. It's like there are dotted lines that run between them all. And lest I forget to mention it, what you already know, both Hamas and Hezbollah are terrorist organizations that are dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel. And Iran is a terror-supporting state that provides financial, military, and other support for both Hamas and Hezbollah. Now, getting back to the dotted lines. There are dotted lines between all of them to each other. Israel is on one side of a very large dotted line, and Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas are on the other, and they are connected to each other in various ways. Hamas is ruling Gaza, as you know, and Hezbollah is in the north of Israel, in Syria and Lebanon. And both organizations are supported to a greater or lesser extent by Iran. Iran actually controls Hezbollah, supports it, feeds it, buys it weapons on a regular basis and in a very massive way. Hamas has had an on-again, off-again relationship with Iran, but seems to be firmly in bed with them at the moment. Now, Hamas and Hezbollah have entered into an agreement that says something like this. If Hamas should decide to attack Israel, then Hezbollah will also attack. Hamas from the south, Hezbollah from the north. And, of course, the reverse would be true as well. And that would give Israel 
two fronts that they have to defend themselves on. But then there's always the possibility that Iran will get involved itself. Now, Iran has been trying to build up its positions in southern Syria. They've been trying to establish their positions as close to the Israeli border as they possibly can. And Israel has been doing a pretty good job of trying to cancel out these movements so that when it discovers that Iran has built a military position closer to the border with Israel than it has been, Israel does everything in its power to take it out. It bombs them, it sends rockets, it sends armed drones, and it does whatever is necessary to keep its own country safe. Israel is one of the only countries in the world, I think, that has faced an enemy on its borders since the day the country was founded in 1948, 71 years ago. It's astonishing. How does a country survive like that? And yet Israel has not only survived, it has thrived. And more than having enemies on its borders, it also has an enemy within. Because in the West Bank, which it captured during the Six-Day War, which was a phenomenal military achievement, imagine Israel was attacked suddenly by three enemy armies, and yet it was able to defeat all three armies and acquire vast amounts of territory in the process. Amazingly, the war was over in six days. So Israel acquired the West Bank. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, you'll see that the West Bank is actually two sections to the north and the south of Jerusalem, and that these sections are almost completely surrounded by the state of Israel. Now, there was a time shortly after the war and for several years after that when things were fairly peaceful between the Arabs of the West Bank and the Israelis. And as a matter of fact, Israelis would go to shop in Arab towns in the West Bank, and Arabs would come to work in Israeli factories and shop in Israeli stores. Israelis could drive almost anywhere within the country and within the West Bank without difficulty and without danger. But then things started to change. The head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, Yasser Arafat, decided that it was time for jihad. Now, there had been terrorist attacks all along since the acquisition of the West Bank. And although some of them were really terrible, they were isolated. But Arafat decided to institutionalize terror. And I can remember speeches that he gave. He gave them in Arabic and he gave them in English. And in English, he talked about seeking peace and peace talks and so forth. And he was so convincing that he even was invited to the White House with Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, where they shook hands on a peace deal. And he was invited with Yitzhak Rabin to Stockholm, where they both won a Nobel Peace Prize. But remember that Arafat was at heart a terrorist, and his mission was to kill Jews and destroy Israel. So when he spoke to his crowd in Arabic, he didn't talk about peace. He talked about jihad. 
and he urged them to send their children to become martyrs in the name of jihad. And they responded with the chant, In blood and fire we will redeem our homeland. So you see there was a great big difference between what he said in English and what he said in Arabic. And that has been the pattern that has been followed by his successors. And maybe that is the reason that we have not been able to have any kind of success with a real peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So today we have a situation which is, at best, unstable. Israel is still fighting terrorists in the West Bank, in Gaza, and on the Lebanese and Syrian borders. The encounters are unpredictable, and Israel faces the terrorist threat on a daily basis. The West seems to think that the answer to this is to give the Arabs, who are now called Palestinians, to give the Palestinians a state of their own. The problem is that they've been offered a state of their own many times for many years. And in the end, when it comes time to making a decision, they have always turned it down. There have also been efforts on the part of the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinians in Gaza to form an alliance, but that has also failed every time. And so we're at an impasse, and yet there has to be some resolution. Now, as you know, Israel has just had another election. This is the second in this cycle. In this election, 32 parties are competing for seats in Israel's parliament, which is called the Knesset. And even though we have some results from this election, a government needs to be formed in a coalition of parties before the results are final. Because when you have 32 parties, no one ever gets a majority. And in this election, the two major parties from the right and the left are so close that the race cannot be called. The best that any party can hope for is a plurality. And once a party wins a plurality, they have to negotiate with other parties to join their coalition so that together they can form a new government. And that's what we are going to be seeing over the next few weeks. The problems in Israel are huge because not only are they required to put together a government, but there may be a war that intrudes during this process. And this is a serious, serious problem. In fact, the likelihood of war is great. Now, there's so much wrong with this whole picture, but it is the background to what's happening in Israel today. Israel now faces Hezbollah in the north with its 150,000 missiles and rockets supplied by Iran, of course, and Hamas in the south, in Gaza, with its rockets and its fires. And I didn't mention, but also weekly demonstrations of tens of thousands of Gazans attacking any way they can the soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces who serve on the other side of the border fence. That's a story for another day. It's a big story, but we'll get to that some other time.
So Israel is a country under siege. We get that. The question is, is war imminent? And that's something we don't know the answer to. Netanyahu said only a few days ago that war with Hamas is unavoidable. But should war come, Israel will be ready for it. And Israel will have a firm partner in the United States to help it survive the war with multiple enemies and continue to thrive. That's my wish. Okay, now we're going to take a short break. But I'll be back. Don't go away because the next section, there's a little bit more on Iran and the growing threat to the world. And then we're going to talk about guns and Beto O'Rourke and his threat to take away our guns of war, whatever they are. Then, in a new section I'm going to call, You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up, we're also going to talk about the professor who thinks good grammar is racist. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. The question I always get asked is, where do I get the energy from? Well, keeping up with Malcolm Out Loud is no easy task, friends, even for Malcolm. Well, you may know that I've personally been taking Healthy Cell for some time now. Well, the great news is Healthy Cell has a new type of natural supplement called the Nutrition Gel. So no more hard-to-swallow pills. Uh, The good-tasting gel can be mixed into smoothies, yogurt, or water. These gels provide maximum absorption of essential nutrients, and it's healthy for our gut, not abrasive like pills can be. You know, it's time for all of us to go pill-free. And you can try it with a free two-day supply. Just cover two ninety-five shipping, and the company Healthy Cell will cover the cost of the product. Go to HealthyCell.com forward slash out loud, or simply click the Healthy Cell logo at the top of AmericaOutloud.com. Now, we've talked about Hamas and Hezbollah, but there is also the problem of Iran. Iran has been threatening Israel for years. Every time there's a public demonstration run by the Iranian government, of course, there are always American flags and Israeli flags being burned and people chanting death to Israel, death to the United States. So at some point, Iran may say now is the time, but we don't know when that will be. However, Iran is making serious, very serious noises about creating chaos. And just this past week, Iran has been accused of bombing Saudi Arabian oil production facilities that destroyed about 50% of Saudi Arabia's production capability. Now, since Saudi Arabia is the second largest producer of oil in the world, second only to the United States. The attacks on its refineries clearly disrupted the world's oil markets, and it has also caused some of the chaos that Iran has been hoping for. It will take months to rebuild these facilities, and in the meantime, the world's oil markets are in a crisis. Iran is fixated on oil, as we know. We know that they have targeted a number of tankers in the Strait of Hormuz and in the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Sea. 
So what is the story with Iran? What are they looking for? What are they trying to do? And how's it working for them? On August 6, 2018, President Donald Trump issued an executive order number 13846 in which the president removed the United States from the JCPOA. That's the agreement that the U.S. and several other countries made with Iran and called it a nuclear deal. This was a good thing that we got out of it because the agreement basically ensured that within 10 years, Iran could be a nuclear power. And that's the last thing, of course, that anybody wants except Iran. But the Obama administration made it happen. And on August 8, 2018, the Trump administration ended the United States participation in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, and then proceeded to lay down a series of sanctions against Iran that would further limit its ability to develop the nuclear weapons that he and the rest of the world are concerned about. Over time, he added to these sanctions, and today Iran's economy is suffering dramatically from the effects. Prices have skyrocketed. The Iranian people are suffering terribly from the crumbling economy. Iran has pulled back on paying its uh, armed forces, with the exception of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is their elite and which reports directly to the Ayatollah. And altogether, Iran's economy is sliding downhill rapidly. So let's take a deeper look into this attack on Saudi's oil refineries. There are three questions that come to mind almost immediately. There is a question as to whether the attack was by drones or whether it was by rockets or missiles. That was one question. And then another question is, where did it come from? The United States said at first that they came from Iran, Iranian territory. But other sources have said that no, they did not come from Iranian territory. But rather, they came from a section of Iraq where Iran has control. And a third question, and probably the most important one, is who is responsible? Well, the answer to the first question is that it was both. Our information confirms that the attack was a combination of Quds-1 cruise missiles and drones, and that they were launched from Iraq. That contradicts the original statement by U.S. government officials that the attack originated in Iran. U.S. officials later retracted that first statement and confirmed that the attacks on the Saudi facility had, in fact, come from Iraq. The Iranians have developed what we call a poor man's cruise missile, and they call it the Quds One. Quds is the name that Muslims give to the city of Jerusalem, and this is a reference to Jerusalem, Quds One. Now, the Quds One has been successfully used by the Houthis against Saudi targets. This attack was made to look like it came from the Houthis, who took responsibility for it, by the way. The Houthis are fighting in Yemen, 
and Iran is their sponsor. But anyway, the Quds One has been used by them, but it wasn't used by them in this instance. Combined with the armed drones, they packed a powerful wallop and caused massive destruction to one of the largest oil refineries in the world. This missile was designed to be rugged and portable, easily transferable, easily operated with a minimum of training, and it has a range of about 500 miles. For the Iranians to launch a missile from Iranian territory doesn't make sense because they want the plausible deniability and they are denying this all over the place. But there seems to be very little doubt that the Iranians are the ones who are responsible for the Saudi attacks. Having said all that, I, I want to reiterate something that I say from time to time, which is that this is the Middle East. And in the Middle East, many things are not as they appear to be. Maybe you remember the old story of the camel who wanted to cross the river, but it was too deep and he didn't know where the right places would be to cross so that he could get across safely. And just as he was pondering this problem, a scorpion came over and said, Mr. Camel, I wonder if you could give me a ride on your back and take me across the river. And Camel said, well, in the first place, I really don't know the river well enough to go across it, although I would like to. But the second thing is that I'm afraid that if you get on my back and we get into the middle of the river, you're going to sting me and I'll drown. And the scorpion said, well, that would be silly. If I stung you in the middle of the river, we'd both drown. And so the camel thought about that for a minute and he said, okay, hop on my back. You'll show me the right place to cross and we'll both get across. So the scorpion hopped on his back and led him to a place where he could cross the river safely. And sure enough, as soon as they got into the middle of the river, the scorpion pulled his tail up and stung the camel. Why did you do that? The camel said, now we're going to drown. And the scorpion just said, how should I know? This is the Middle East. Now that's just a parable, but it does tell a story that is not that far distant from the truth. The Middle East is a bit of an enigma to Westerners because the way of thinking for people who live in the Middle East is very different from the way we think in the West. And if you haven't lived there for any length of time or if you haven't been taught what the customs are and how people look at life, it may be very difficult to understand. So for example, there are forces in the Middle East that want the United States to attack Iran and then Donald Trump will be forever responsible. There are other forces in the Middle East who want Donald Trump to engage Iran because they believe that their survival and the survival of their people depends on it. And then there's the rest of the world who rely on Middle East oil and they want that oil supply stabilized at any cost. And then of course, there is the IRGC and the mullahs of Iran who are waiting for their 12th Imam or Messiah. And they believe that chaos must precede his arrival. And they believe that they can create the chaos that is necessary to welcome the Mahdi or the 12th Imam to Iran. So there are a lot of conflicting interests in the Middle East. 
And it makes analyzing the situation very complicated and very difficult. Which brings us back to the situation with Israel. Because Israel, whether they like it or not, Israel is the center of much of the energy that's expended in the Muslim world. So when Iranians at a public demonstration sponsored by the government burn the Israeli flag and say death to Israel, this is what they're talking about. The crazy thing is that Israel, as I have I said before, Israel is a tiny little country, no bigger than the state of Vermont. And yet the total size of Israel is 8,000 square miles. And the total area of Muslim lands, which span all the way from West Africa all the way to Asia, is 5 million square miles. So you weigh that on a scale, 8,000 square miles, 5 million square miles. It's a ridiculous, it's absurd. And yet, for reasons which defy explanation, the Muslims want this tiny piece of land. And it, too, has to be a Muslim country. So they want the Jews gone. Does it make any sense to you? Well, just remember what the scorpion said. This is the Middle East. And it doesn't have to make sense. So this becomes a centerpiece for a lot of radical Muslim activity in the rest of the world. Which brings me to the question of Iran's nuclear capability, which is something that people don't talk about very much, and this may be a little bit explosive, so hold on to your hats. The pundits and the politicians keep talking about how important it is to keep Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. The only problem with that is that there are serious people in the intelligence world who know that Iran already has a nuclear weapon. And this is something that is very troubling to me because the rest of the world is essentially ignoring that. Now, I've been writing on this subject since the beginning of 2014. Iran actually acquired a primitive version of a nuclear weapon. They bought two Russian-made nuclear-tipped missiles from Kazakhstan. And that was back in 1995. And they reverse-engineered them so they could find out how they work. And this was the beginning of their nuclear program. And then over the years, you know the story, they built their own reactors and they, they did a lot of other things. From the early days, they had some collaboration with the North Koreans. But in 2012, when the United Nations was sending its nuclear inspectors to Iran, Iran began a wholesale shipment of its R&D program to North Korea, where they would escape the oversight of the UN inspectors. And between 2012 and today, Iran and North Korea have been working very close, hand-in-hand, hand, on three projects that we know about. The first was to develop a plutonium bomb. The second 
was to miniaturize it so it would fit on the slender frame of their Shahab missiles. And the third area was in launching mechanisms for these missiles and their nuclear warheads. They even tested five of these plutonium bombs that they had developed. They tested them inside Mount Manta in the northeastern part of North Korea. And they were successful in exploding five of them before the entire mountain began to collapse. And that stopped this particular kind of testing. But in the meantime, North Korea and Iran, between 2012 and 2018, had developed successfully nuclear weapons that could fit on the Shahab missile and could be deployed effectively. To the best of our knowledge, Iran is keeping their nuclear weapons safe. And as far as we know, they have no plans to deploy them. However, according to reports from on the ground, they have placed them in various parts of their country. And because their mission, their strategy is so erratic, and their ideology is so foreign to us, it's difficult to know how dangerous these weapons really are to the rest of the world. They don't have a long range, but they have a long enough range to reach Israel, to reach Saudi Arabia, to reach the Arab Emirates, and so forth. So if these intelligence reports are true, if Iran does in fact have a nuclear weapon, and reports suggest that they may have several of them, then our whole strategy for dealing with Iran needs to change. It needs to be updated so that we take into account the fact that Iran has this capability and that we have to take some kind of preventative measures to ensure that Iran never uses those weapons. And that's a big order, but it's necessary because if Iran truly wants to hasten the coming of the Mahdi, the hidden 12th Imam, their Messiah, then they will do whatever they see is necessary to create the chaos that they believe will bring him. So the world is a complicated place and it gets more complicated every day. I disagree with those who say that our number one threat is climate change. Right now, our number one threat is Iran, and we need to pay attention to what is really going on there. We cannot effectively deal with Iran if we do not open our eyes to the realities there. Iran has done everything to hide, to cover up, to disguise its nuclear program in every way possible, and even to move parts of it out of the country to avoid detection. So if these reports are accurate, we need to change our game. We need to up our game, and we need to be very firm about what we have to do in order to keep the region safe from a nuclear attack, to keep Israel safe, 
and to keep our own interests in that region, and we have plenty of them, safe and secure for the foreseeable future. Okay, I'm going to take another short break, but I'll be right back with some very entertaining stories for you. So stay right where you are. I'll be right back. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. So here we are again. This has been a pretty serious program up to now, and I think it's time to lighten up the mood a little bit. So I want to tell you about a new segment that I want to put in here called You Can't Make This Stuff Up. And uh, I've been using that phrase a lot, when I, particularly when I talk about California or AOC because the things that they do are so outrageous that it's very difficult not to laugh, not to mock, except that the things that they say and are suggesting are so serious because they're being taken seriously. And in the case of California, they're being enacted into law. And that is very serious indeed. So let me start off with a story about a professor from the University of Washington in Tacoma, who was now also teaching other teachers at the American University in the other Washington, Washington, D.C. The professor in question is a man named Asao B. Inouye, who is a professor at the University of Washington in Tacoma, and he teaches interdisciplinary arts and sciences, and is also the director, believe it or not, of the university's writing center. Now, he believes that a person's writing ability shouldn't be measured by his grammar because he wants to promote anti-racist objectives 
And he taught the American University's faculty members that their methods of teaching, of grading writing, promoted on what he called white language supremacy. Now, that is a mouthful. And between you and me, it doesn't mean a darn thing. He thinks that students should be graded on the effort they put into a project and not on the basis of their grasp of the language. Now, those of you who have been listening to my show for a while have, have learned that I have a pet peeve when it comes to grammar and the use of proper grammar. Well, it's really less of a pet and much more of a peeve. There is nothing racist about grammar, and that's really where I want to go with this discussion, because there is inherent in what Professor Inoue is saying that students of color are unable to grasp the principles of grammar, and they don't learn it in grade school anymore. It's not being taught, as far as I can tell. And so this is called the soft bigotry of low expectations. The soft bigotry of low expectations. And here's what it means. It seems that they think these professors, like Professor Inouye and the people who are following his lead, they think that people of color are just too dumb to learn grammar. And in any case, they're not being taught grammar in today's schools. And therefore, they shouldn't be graded, if they go to college, they shouldn't be graded on their grammar. They should be graded on the amount of effort that goes into whatever the assignment is. This is rubbish. We're dumbing down our kids to such an extent that they can no longer speak the language of the country they live in. It's pathetic. And we're we're excusing what we're doing by saying that our expectations of them are so low that we're actually being deeply prejudiced against them. And we're stacking the deck against them because without good grammar, they will not get the kinds of jobs that educated people get. Now, I remember when I was in seventh grade, which would be, I guess, middle school now, I was taught with my class how to diagram a sentence. I was taught that you have to understand that there is a subject and a predicate in a proper sentence, and that there are pronouns which are subjective and objective, meaning that I would be in the subject of a sentence, and me would be in the predicate of the sentence, the second half of the sentence that contains the verb. Uh, we learned all this in school, and, and, and I've used it all my life. I'm a writer. I'm an analyst, and I use language all the time in my work. And my, my grammar is correct most of the time, almost all the time. So, you know, it, it hurts me deeply when people who are supposed to know better decide that things that we learned that were so important in our lives no longer have any importance at all and, in fact, are racist. The man who is racist is Professor Inoue. And, as I said, his prejudice is the soft bigotry 
of low expectations. By not holding students accountable to proper grammar, that hurts the student. And his writing abilities and his speaking abilities will always suffer because he never learned the basics. He was never given the building blocks at an age where it would mean something and it would stick. And if you look at how these terms are used or how they should be used and how they're actually used, there's a huge gulf between those two things. Racism means that you discriminate against a person because of his or her race, the color of his skin, his ethnic background. But when you call grammar racist, you're talking nonsense. But now, anything you don't like is racist. Anything you think offends you, that's racist. No, it's not. It's malarkey. So I, I just want to say for the record here that racism is getting a bad rap because it's being applied to just about everything, which means that it means just about nothing. And that's too bad because there really is a thing called racism. And being a racist is a bad thing. It means you look at a person's skin color and make a judgment rather than looking at the whole person, the person inside the body, who he or she is, and making your judgment about him or her based on character, not on color. And one of the sad things about this climate right now, if you remember back during the election time, students, particularly students of color, were feeling insecure in the face of the Donald Trump campaign. And they were demanding what they called safe spaces. The problem with safe spaces is that it invites people who are the same to hide out together, to stick together, to join in a place where they feel safe and they're not challenged by people who don't agree with them. But in the case of these safe spaces, it was usually people of color who went to them and hung out together. In reality, they segregated themselves from the rest of the community because of the color of their skin. Now, if that isn't racist, I don't know what is. So I think it would be nice, it won't happen, but if it would be nice if this nation would rethink how Americans relate to each other, regardless of the color of their skin or the country of their origin. I'm a conservative saying this, and I think the nation should take note because we need to do something to cure the fracturing that has taken place in our nation between the left and the right, between liberals and conservatives, between socialists and Democrats. We need to have a conversation that is civil and in which we reach out to each other to try to understand each other better. This isn't the first time I've talked about this, and you'll probably hear me talk about it again. But this is a mission for Americans, a mission for Americans to open up the conversation and start reaching out to each other to create a new conversation, one that is not full of hate and not full of vitriol 
and certainly not full of violence. So, Professor Inouye, forget your bigotry of low expectations. We need to think that our children are capable of reaching the moon, touching the stars, becoming everything that they can be. But in order to do that, they need the basics of a good education. And that means training them in critical thinking and in the structure of the language that they speak and in literature and art and all the things that enrich our lives and make us better people. Okay, now there's another story lurking in here somewhere. Well, let's talk about Beto O'Rourke and the Democrat, what they called a debate. It wasn't really a debate. A debate is an argument between two sides in which each side proves their point and disproves their opponent's point. That's a debate. But in any case, they call this a debate, so let's go with it. Beto O'Rourke was asked about his position on guns. And was he serious about confiscating America's guns. And you know what he said? He said, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15 and your AK-47 and we're not going to allow it to be used against your fellow Americans anymore. Unquote. And then he went on to tweet, leaving millions of weapons of war on the street because Trump and McConnell are, quote, at least pretending to be open to reforms. Unquote. Hell no. Well, that's what he said. He also said that he thought Americans would be more than willing to give up their AR-15s and their AK-47s because they want their children to be safe in school. Really? The Second Amendment says, and I quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Unquote. So what does that mean? That's a lot of language that we're not very comfortable with these days. We speak in shorthand and we even make up words when the words we have aren't sufficient. A well-regulated militia. Well, in the days of the American Revolution, it meant people who are trained. The militia was an ad hoc, informal group of local residents, mostly men and boys, were trained in firearms. And the second phrase, referring to a well-regulated militia, didn't mean something like our current-day National Guard, which is also a well-regulated militia, but that's not what they were referring to because it didn't exist then. It meant these men and boys who were trained and practiced regularly on their firearms. And the second phrase quote, being necessary to the security of a free state, unquote, meaning that if the government becomes overwhelmingly restrictive and tries to take those freedoms away from us, armed citizenry who are well-trained in the use of firearms are responsible for the security of freedom, meaning that the American people have the right and the responsibility, as well as the ability to defend themselves against an oppressive government. And because of that, 
The third part of the sentence says, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that's my interpretation of the Second Amendment, and there are a lot of legal scholars who, I'm not a legal scholar, but I am definitely a proponent of those who have made those determinations. There's been a lot of debate about that, and it's not going to end anytime soon. Because there are people, and I'm one of them, who believe that the phrase, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, creates an individual constitutional right for citizens of the United States to be able to own and keep firearms under this individual right. And what Beto O'Rourke wants to do is to restrict that right. He says there are certain kinds of guns you can't have. And what he talks about, weapons of war, it's not clear what he's talking about. An AR-15 is not a weapon of war. It's basically a rifle. Only it, it has some things added to it that make it look much more dangerous than it actually is. And it's big and it's black and scary looking to people who are afraid of guns, but it's a rifle and it is used for hunting. Although, you know, there are many hunters who like to use it and some who don't. And it's not a weapon of choice for soldiers. But you see, Beto O'Rourke is wrong. Because it's not the guns that create the problem. It's the people who misuse them. Here's an interesting fact. It is estimated that there are as many guns in the United States as there are people. More, in fact. An estimate in 2015 suggested that there are more than 350 million guns in the United States. That's a lot of guns. So think about this for a minute. A national buyback or confiscation would be a logistical nightmare. And the amount of violence that would ensue from objecting citizens would be unimaginable. And there's something else. Not everybody buys their guns at a gun store or at a gun show. Guns are sold in the dark of night, in alleys, on street corners, in the inner cities, in the country. These are illegal guns. There's no background check, just a, an exchange of cash for a gun. And these are the guns that do the most damage in this country. So Beto O'Rourke, you're really barking up the wrong tree. We have to really study this problem. It's a big problem. And I don't have any easy answers to it. But I will tell you this, it needs to be approached with intelligence and seriousness and compassion, not with knee-jerk reactions to every shooting that takes place. Americans need to understand the responsibilities that come with gun ownership, but forcibly confiscating guns from law-abiding Americans is unconstitutional and un-American. Well, that's all the time we have today, and I've really enjoyed spending it with you. I guess it was more serious than I expected it would be, but they're all part of the news, and that's my job, to tell the stories of the news of the past week, and hope you will find them interesting and stimulating. I'm glad you spent this hour with me. I look forward to seeing you again next week. This has been the News Magazine 
on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. God bless. <laughs>